Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. Hi, I'm Exin Deval, and if a leader takes us where we want to go, does a great leader take us where we ought to be, and not necessarily where we would like to go? Today, I'm speaking to Cynthia Bryant. She's worked in federal agencies for the last 20 years, and has led mediations to resolve workplace conflicts, and even been part of advising bodies to the president, specifically on diversity and inclusion. She served on multiple boards, amongst others, the University of Kansas Law School and the Seeing Guy Dog School. Incidentally, that is especially close to her heart as she uses a guide dog herself. We begin by talking about her experiences with President Jimmy Carter before moving on to broader topics about how disability knows no race or color or gender. She gives incredible insights into the difficulties of segregation and the search for solutions that help people move forward. We then talk about the best qualities of a leader, how to engage with people and deal with their assumptions. We close by discussing why we need to take a moment just to shut our eyes and listen, and that sometimes we can actually see better with our eyes closed. I do hope you enjoy listening to Cynthia as much as I've loved talking to her. You've had an interesting career, and mm-hmm. I've um, have seen your fair share of interesting people, I think. <laughs> what would you say was the the person you admired most? When I was building my career and getting into mediation and negotiation, I had to do a um, I had to do an internship, and one of the one of the people that I interned with, or one of the people I interviewed at the time, was uh, President Jimmy Carter. And um, I wanted to find out about being savvy and, and how one works. Um, in negotiating. So I was able to go down to, uh, through, through family friends, I was able to go down to, um, Plains, Georgia and, um, actually interview him and his, his, uh, wife, Mrs. Carter. And the reason I was so taken with him is his, um, commitment to, um, you know, essentially, whatever he started, he became very tunnel. He became um, extremely focused in what he did, and he completed it. And when I was talking to him about Camp David, and he was telling me um, about the negotiation, and he kept on going, and no matter where there was some type of uh, block, he persevered. And it's that perseverance about. The individual that I that I, I, I greatly admire, um, perseverance, resilience, um, 
where there's a will, there's always a way. And I, and I saw that in, in President Carter. Um, it, was a, it was an extremely fascinating interview. Um, he's also a very spiritual individual, so his, his uh, connection with uh, spirituality in his church is, is uh, you know, his faith is, can't be shaken. So he's quite a rock, and I admire that. How did that influence you? You know, it influenced me in the sense that if adversity comes your way, you keep on uh, keep on pushing through. You keep on finding a way. And just in watching him and understanding coming out of office, starting from ground zero, he persevered. And the influence for me was... Uh, his excitement about what he did and, you know, my excitement about mediation, my excitement about working with people and that, you know, your dreams can be realized. And I think that he, he really kickstarted that for me again. Um, very much so. He just kickstarted that whole idea of don't give up on what you want to do. I, talk, I mean, we're talking about a, a man that's quite admired and has a, has a huge influence on the way that we today view things like negotiation. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that he's taught the world about that. I, um, mm-hmm. I have a big um, chunk of respect for him. Um, but not necessarily looking at him only, what would you say leadership means to you? Mm. Leadership, in my opinion, is the ability to not only see the big picture, but also leadership is to bring in others and not stand in the way of their progress. Um, A great leader is never afraid to let others shine. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, when we think back on um, the way that corporations and, and in the old days, you come to uh, an organization, you come to a corporation, and there's a, there's a company line, and you follow the company line, and there's one way to do something. But in today's uh, society, leaders have to not just hold a company line, it is not just the process, it's the people. And we've moved into an age where we're all converging in the workplace. Um, we're converging in terms of generations, in terms of social and racial and ethnic groups. And a true leader has to recognize those types of things. I think a true leader has to be able to step back and, and do that self-evaluation, uh, that self-assessment. Of them, you know, to be able to um, be grounded in who they are, understand their biases, understand um, um, themselves, and then in doing so, bring that into understanding others. It, there has to be a greater openness as a leader than there than there used to be in the past. It's a demand today, 
And in being able to do that, we're able to embrace more of the different groups of individuals that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, gender, um, societal, racial color, disability, all of those types of things. If you do not understand yourself first, then you cannot open yourself to understanding others. Do you also think that is the core of relationships? Oh, most definitely. Um, a part of relationship building is the ability to make that self-assessment. And, you know, I think that a part of that is an ability to be, um, to exercise, and I've been doing this in some of the trainings I've been doing lately, to exercise empathy. Empathy doesn't mean that, uh, doesn't mean pity, it doesn't mean sympathy, it means I'm able to step back and take myself out of the picture and see who you are. And when I do that, I begin to understand how I can relate to you. Mm. Um, and this is, to me, a vital part of um, working with people with disabilities. Um, the thing that I've, I, I, I would say about people when you're working with people with disabilities um, specifically is that I think it's forgotten that we cross all spectrums. I'm a person who is blind, and we cross all spectrums. Um, disability knows no race, no color, no gender, none of those things. So um, we are, as, as, as a people, um, um, trying to establish networks, trying to relationship build across all of these spectrums. Um, and, you know, I can go and I can be in an organization that is predominantly um, one culture. I still have to deal with disability for that particular culture or societal group. Mm. And um, I can go to a different one. There's still going to be dealing with that, uh, you know, dealing with disability as it relates to that group of people. So disability has no boundaries. Um, there's, it's, it's not classified into to one group of people. We're, we're, we're across the spectrum. And a leader has to be able to uh, have that open, openness and that realization of how broad that is. So, so could we say that leadership is a type of relationship? It is. It's an ongoing relationship. It's a relationship that um, has to be continually assessed and reassessed and um, built and rebuilt and reflected upon the bumps and you know, bruises. How do you recover from those, those, all of those things that occur? Um, it's not just an awareness of yourself, but also how do you handle conflict when it arises? Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's many, many components based on relationships. But yes, it is relationship building. Do you think relationships um, can help us combat discrimination? I do. Um, What's fascinating to me is if we can get in close. Um, 
I've spoken about this before, about how we perceive the world with our eyes. 85% is, is, is our perception, our learning is through our eyes. And in doing all of this, this allows us to watch from a distance, to assess and learn from a distance, to not go in deep. It's interesting, yesterday I was even getting on the elevator and, and a, a woman asked me, um, I have a service dog, and I got on the elevator and she said, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to be rude, but you have some sight, right, in order to use that dog. And this is her assessment from afar because, you know, when I go to school to learn to use the dog, the dog has to be on point. The dog has to be good at her game. And so she knows how to go and find a button and knows the button for me to push the button. But this, and I, I assume that this woman was observing this through her perception. So she, she automatically came to the assumption that, oh, she must have sight. Otherwise, she would not be able to do that. Mm. And, I, you know, and I asked her and I responded to her. I said, well, I have very limited sight, but people who are completely blind can do the same thing. And it was a light bulb, and it was, oh, okay, um, that's wonderful. But, but my point here is that that was perceiving from afar. You know, if she had not asked that question, she would have internalized that particular, um, you know, she would have come to that conclusion, and that would have been the end of the story for her, that people who use dogs must have some sight, and what I'm saying about being able to get in close is we've got to get past our eyesight and get in close and ask the questions, get in close and sit down with the, with the people. Now, there is, you know, I think we have to be careful of how we, we begin to, you know, that dialogue with each other so that we are um, making sure the other is open and ready to, you know, to engage. But the point being is that the way we get past these these racial tensions, these um, these discriminations, is to not only um, perceive with our eyes, but get in and have the conversation and sit down, and then we begin to step out of ourselves and begin to hear the other person. She learned something that day. Mm. I find it interesting what you're saying because it's. Um if you look at the studies on cognitive empathy, um, the ability to see how other people are feeling, there's, um, on the one side of the spectrum, we have people with Asperger's or Down syndrome, you know, so, so people that have a really difficult time figuring out what other people are feeling. Um, and then with people on the other side, which is a recent study where they combined DNA um, studies with 23andMe and, uh, um, and cognitive empathy studies from, from Oxford, um, from Baron Cohen there. And what they found is that there's a, gene, a set of genes, and basically, the let's say the layman's version of this is, if it's all switched on, then you become a super seer. So somebody, I have one of those that worked for me, and she's amazing. I mean, she knows what you're feeling before you're able to articulate it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I found interesting, if, if you layer it on top of that, is this Netflix program called Babies. And in that, they talk about our ability to distinguish facial features from as early as three months of age, mm -hmm. but that we only imprint on our primary caregivers around about age nine months and older. So all of a sudden, the individuals we knew before has now become groups. Mm 
And so we seem to get stuck in that. The moment we grow up in monocultures, we end up with an inability to see. And then we really do need those conversations. So it's just, it, I find it's interesting that you're coming from a, from a site challenge part. And then the conclusion that you're coming to is in essence the same, that, that we need to have the conversation. It doesn't matter if you can or cannot see, you need to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And there's also with neuroplasticity, we know that if you have the ability to read other people's faces, it just takes practice to be able to read faces that you're not used to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, one thing is I went to China and um, I spent um, spent yeah, just over a week there in some courses at Tsinghua University learning about how, how to do business in China. And I spent three days at the end of it just sitting in Beijing on a park bench and walking around the streets all by myself and just looking at people. Mm-hmm. Before I went, I was like, I can't figure out what these people are feeling. <laughs> this is weird. And coming from Africa, it was, it was never a problem for me. And here all of a sudden I was struggling. And by the end of three days, I could see somebody was probably Han because they looked like they're more, more like people from the south. And some people look more like people from the north or, or northwest, sort of more Mongolian. And... It's just interesting and fascinating how quickly our, our bodies and our minds adapt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you think leaders should promote relationships at work or connections at work? I think it's imperative that uh, leaders do that. I, right now, um, what I often see in the workplace is, you know, people. Uh, focusing on process and they forget that it takes people to to get the job done Um, and in order to really be effective you have to connect with them you have to be able to know the strengths of your of your team the strengths of those around you and draw on them because when you're doing that in relationship building that also brings out that and that person makes them feel good about themselves and they produce for you even more. You have to be able to look at, look at your, you know, read your people and learn that, oh, this individual, this is their particular strength. And if I marry that with this, with this individual and I marry it with this and this other instru- in- individual, you know, the, the sky's the limit. I've got a powerful team versus... I'm, you know, I'm all about process and I need to get it done. And all of you just fall in line and here's yours, here's yours, and here's yours. People will do it, but you will not get the same reaction. You won't get the same feedback. You may not even get the same, you know, retention of that individual. They may go somewhere else because part of, uh, I think, society today, it's not just about you know, the job or the work, it's about me, my development, who I am in the process. So there's a lot of work out there for, for uh, leaders today to be able to read their people, uh, to, you know, be able to know generationally where they're coming from, uh, racially, society, socially-wise, where are they coming from? Um, and when you can really pull on those strengths, pull on those aspects of individuals, then then you really produce an incredible, incredible team. So yes, leadership 
is about relationship building. The, what you need to produce will always be there. That is going to be there. How well you do it depends on how well you connect with your team, with your people. Do you think relationships can help us overcome biases? I think if we continue to... Part of overcoming our bias, again, I would go back, is starting with ourselves, understanding our upbringing, where we come from, who we are, and then layering that on to um, our workplace, our leadership, our, you know, if it's an organization, if it's a, if it's a corporation, layering that on top of that. Again, that becomes that comes from that self-reflection. Um, but relationships, if we dig in deep, if we, um, for myself, I would say, if, if someone sits down and talks to me about disability, talks to me about needs, um, um, engages, then I do think we overcome our biases. Just like the, the, the message that I mentioned earlier about the woman on the elevator that had an assumption based on her visual perception that was blown out of the water once she engaged. Mm. Um, and that is the pivotal point. It's interesting, I was thinking, and I've been thinking about this when we're small, we, and I was, uh, before I went into the law, I was an early childhood teacher and I remember with the young children, you know, they were preschool age, age three and four. I would tell them at some point, because hands are busy, I would say, look with your eyes, you know, not with your hands. And what am I teaching them? I'm teaching them that visual perception. And I didn't think about that till years later, that that's what I'm teaching them. And that's what we do teach when we go into you know, an establishment with a young child, look with your hand, look with your eyes, not with your hands. So we're breaking down that a little bit as well, the, the uh, types of imprints we put on children when they're younger. And now we're telling people to engage, dig in deep, you know, don't look with your eyes only, look with your, listen, ask the question, engage, um, use your other senses, um, and uh, it's kind of a reversal that we need to engage in. Hmm. And I think it's imperative, too, that when we're engaging, that we look into that gray space. There is a gray space of understanding that's not me and it's not you. Sometimes when you're talking to someone and you're engaging with them and you're learning about them, they're not always saying, and I think you touched on this when you're trying to understand the gray, gray space, when you sit down with someone, they may not, uh, you have to be able to read between the lines of what's being said to you when you're learning about uh, those around you. And that, that, that's an art that takes time to know that what I'm saying, there's something behind what I'm saying um, when you're engaging with me. With me, that kind of perception, though, 
do you think it only comes with time or is there a practice element to it as well? How do you think, let, let me put it in context. Mm-hmm. Um, very good friend of mine, Musa, took his kids to school, actually to football practice the other day. And after practice, the kids were playing, sort of like coming off the field together. And um, Musa's Nigerian, his wife's um, Dutch blonde woman. And mm-hmm. um, so his kids don't look like the other kids at school. Mm. And the dad of the boy they were playing with came up to them and said, um, we don't associate with people like that. We're talking about children. We're talking about people, children, pre-primary school, primary school level. You know, and it's just like, the, oh, the, mm. the the pain. It causes me pain to think about it. You know, mm-hmm. but it doesn't do that for everyone. And I'm wondering, how do we make? Makes maybe the wrong word. How do we help? people to understand the pain and get them to work towards solutions. Because when, we're, when, when it's anger, people walk away, you know, people don't mm. like, necessarily like confrontation. Mm. But how can we have a confrontation that turns into a learning conversation? You know, that's when we have to begin to engage in those, those difficult conversations, I think that we will have no choice um, to do so. It's, it's one of those things where, where time will tell, because if you look at the population in the United States, um, it's going to be, you know, in the next... Uh, 30 years, 40 years, it will be minority-based. The, the, the couple you speak of will be the norm, that it won't be unusual. And there are more and more children in this space. Conversations, difficult conversations are arising now. Um, I see it in my, my church. I see it in my community at large. These conversations are being pushed. The envelope is being pushed. I think we are moving in that direction, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, I can think of all sorts of stories through time. And the other, the, you know, the, the young child and the parents that you speak of are going to exist. When I was a child, um, and I was, I think I was 10 years old, and I was, there was a young uh, Jewish girl, um, that I thought was my best friend. And um, one day she said to me, and I never really understood it, but she said, oh, I can never come to your house. You're not Jewish. I can never have you over. And I thought, oh, okay. So, you know, these types of things exist. When I was in, um, you can fast forward from, you know, 10 years old to when I was uh, an early childhood teacher and a young little boy was sitting next to me, and it was it was fascinating to me. Um, he he was three years old, and um, I was the only African American uh, teacher there. And I was sitting with him, waiting for his father to come. And um, 
um, he was holding, he was looking at my hand and I guess all of a sudden this light bulb went off for him and he started rubbing my hand. And he just said to me in, in the most innocent voice, he goes, why won't that rub off? Your hand is dirty. And, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, his father, I actually, his father was from South Africa and his father had notions of, um, um, what he thought his son should be, who he thought his son should be exposed to. He was very limited in his exposure. And I looked at him and I said, oh, um, well, you know, that is the color of my skin and that, that won't rub off. That's who I am. And the most I could do in that instant is know that he's known me as a teacher Whatever he may learn in his home, hopefully he will challenge it as an adult. But, you know, at the same time, I have to respect his household um, yeah. as a teacher. But by knowing me, my, you know, I, I can only hope he would be grown today. By knowing me, I would only hope that perhaps he, that seed was planted that, you know, she's not a bad person after all. As he grows older, he will reflect on that. But honestly, we, we are moving in that direction. The, the society is pushing the discussion. The, the discussion is, is ripe. It's there. Mm. Um, we can't go back. I think it's this, I mean, we all know horror stories, I think. I uh, am... Yeah. When I was knee high to a grasshopper, basically, just sort of like a first few years in school, mm -hmm. um, I had a friend on the farm that I grew up in Africa that I played with. Um, and he ran and he fell and he cut open his stomach with a bottle mm. when he fell. And uh, my mum and I rushed him to hospital and he didn't make it eventually. And... Um, so it was a tough time for me to, to lose a friend at that early age. Mm. But when I went to school and talked about him, he was, his memory was treated as if it was worthless. And that to me was really the first time where I realized that I may not be thinking the same way as a, as, as a lot of my peers. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky in that... Um, when I went to university, there was this guy called Orban, and um, we shared a room in Bloemfontein. Um, and at the time, it was the first year that black students were allowed at the university, mm. at this specific university. And for me to share a room with someone of color was considered not done. But he was the nicest guy in my year. Why would I not share a room with him? He's still one of the nicest people I know, and we're still friends, mm -hmm. you know? And so, it's sometimes, I find it frustrating to, to know the conversations can be had, mm -hmm. but that so few people are interested in having them. If, if we, if we look at characteristics, so, so what I'm trying to get to is 
if we look at leaders, mm -hmm. and not the leaders of yesteryear, but the leaders of tomorrow, mm -hmm. the leaders going forward from now on, not let's start in companies, places where leaders can have a direct impact. What kind of leaders do we need? And what should their characteristics be if we have to pick three things about a person and say, well, if you have this, then you have a future in this new world of ours. Mm. If you can think of the three key characteristics you would say a great leader will have going forward, what would that be? If I had to start with one, I would, I would choose empathy. You have to have the ability to not be afraid to step out of yourself and to learn about others. It does not mean that you give up who you are, but you have an ability to listen and understand who others are. Um, and that's where I'd say you have to have that ability to navigate that gray space. Um, if I were to choose another quality, I would say that there, that someone who does not have a fear of the unknown, um, if there's one word, I don't know that, that there's a, a word I would think of, but the phrase would say a lack of, no, no fear of the unknown, because there are so many things that are not clear in terms of relationships. There are so many things that will challenge you um, in terms of pushing the envelope, in terms of saying, no, that's not right, or how can that be, or I want to know more about that. You have to not have a fear and be able to stand up for yourself. Um, and if I were to choose a third, Patience, knowing that um, change will come, but change requires, you know, patience. Um, it's not overnight. <laughs> it could be a couple of years, but the ability to know that it is coming and I will be patient, fearless, and pushing the envelope. I will be one who stays in that gray space and understands myself in relationship to others, but I'm able to understand and listen to others, to walk the gray space, and to be patient but fearless. Mm. All of those things, I think, are, 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 are key elements. Um, because you have to be able, when you're in that gray space, when you're looking and you have that patience, but you're fearless, you know when the time is ripe to move it through. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. It's a combination of all those things. And if you can really exercise um, being grounded in yourself, being fearless and patient and being empathetic, I think those are key factors in leadership. Um, 
To what extent do you think Jimmy Carter lives those ideals? <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. Isn't that funny? I would say that he does live them. Um, you know, he's done Habitat for Humanity. He's done, um, I think it was the, oh, my gosh, it's the diseases in the in the developing world that he's been able to you know bring down to zero or next to zero it required patience it required working and navigating among cultures and people and governments seeing the light at the end of the tunnel knowing where the beacon is even though in front of that obstacles were or swaying you one way or another, it required empathy to be in the in the in the uh, gray space for him to accomplish all of those goals. My gosh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that is who he is. That is definitely who he is and his accomplishments. But I also find it fascinating that you chose that you chose him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as your as as somebody that you admire. Are these also qualities that you? that you foster yourself? You know, they are. Um, they really are. And I think as, um, as someone with a disability, um, there can be many frustrations. Um, you know, even with the woman who stopped me and asked me in the elevator, I could have been offended. But there's a part that you say, this is a question. This is, you need to be patient. You need to answer the question because that sends that person away with a nugget and knowledge that they can carry forward. So I oftentimes, as I've gotten older, have to exercise that patience and by gosh, uh, being fearless and, uh, uh, um, in my endeavors is, is, is definitely something I need to, that I, that I, you know, exercise because if not, then you have to you get knocked down. You got to get back up. Um, mm. and that's, that's quite a, that's part of that fearless. And it's interesting for me as someone who is female, someone who is African American and someone who is, uh, blind, my greatest challenge is my disability. It's interesting how you, how one might think, oh, you know, race comes into play. Race is not, doesn't require as much patience as disability. <laughs> mm. um, disability, as I mentioned earlier, crosses all spectrums. So it requires greater patience and there's more acceptance in terms of race and in terms of gender before disability. Um, hmm. Or I shouldn't say acceptance, but uh, lack of knowledge. Um, I think what's... What, this is just a stab in the dark, but... I sometimes feel that when people don't know the assumptions they make, mm -hmm around their discomfort leads them onto tracks where 
they come to conclusions that are so far off the mark. You know? I mean, as a gay guy growing up in Africa, the assumptions that were made about me, right, were phenomenal, to say the least. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I see that happening around me as well. People making assumptions about race, people making assumptions about disability. I mean, people being treated as if they are lesser, mm -hmm. be that intellectually or in the other way. And just because they're different. And I wonder how, how can we bridge that if we're not patient? If we cannot exercise patience, how do we bridge that? Is that? Yeah. Hmm. Um, there are people who I guess that are driven towards getting, you know, the job done or um, they, if you're more knowledge-based, then make sure that you have all of your if you're inquisitive enough to go and research it, then make sure you gather all of the knowledge that you can about a particular area, about a, a particular disability. But minus the engagement, you have got to engage. You've got to be able to sit down, take the time to learn about um, um, individuals, uh, that just has to be a part of it. I don't think that's a matter of patience. That's a matter of if you're going to, as my mother would always say um, when we were growing up, she exposed us to different cultures, different people, uh, different ways of life, different religions. She said, you know, you need to engage because if you are going to come up with a certain opinion, you will not do it out of ignorance. You will do it because you have the knowledge, you've been in there, and you, then you make whatever assumptions you want to make. But it is with knowledge, it's with interaction that you make those assumptions, that you come to your conclusions, not just sitting back and hearing one side of the story. There's always more, more, more than one side to the story. And I think if we don't have patience, then we have to be able to, ch to challenge our assumptions. If you want to make it scientific, if you're more of a, a someone who's very... Um, systematic in your approach, challenge your assumptions. Always challenge your assumptions so that you keep yourself moving and you don't sit square on one opinion. Challenge it. Make sure it is what you think it is. And challenging it means you have to engage. I think that that was highlighted for me when, remember way back when we, when we were in class together in Harvard? Mm-hmm. There, there was one thing that was said, which I really enjoyed in that specific course. It was um, the difference between an intent and impact. Mm. And that we make these assumptions about what other people may be thinking. Mm -hmm. And we don't challenge our own perceptions mm -hmm. of what we think they, they're thinking. Mm -hmm. And so we, we make statements, we do things... And we, we hide behind, but it was only a joke, or I didn't mean it that way. And we don't take that ownership of the pain we may be causing or the frustration we may be unleashing on others. 
Um, and that self-reflection that you're talking about, I think it's just, it has to be there for us to grow as people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We do often hide behind, uh, you know, our, our, our stories that we tell ourselves. There's just, when you take a, there's a course called Crucial Conversations, and there's one aspect of it that's mastering your stories. And, you know, we can look at something and we can tell a story. That's where I was talking about earlier where you're, where you're not engaged, you're sitting back and you are seeing and you're coming up with what you perceive is the story. And mm. part of mastering the story is to pose the question, is to get in there and, and speak on it. And you're right. It's the ability as a leader to be able to say, um, I was wrong. Um, uh, I misjudged. There is, we need to make it okay and for someone to admit that they were wrong. Oftentimes when you see, in a, I've, when you encountered in mediation, you know, the, the idea that the end of one person just wants to be heard and, you know, the looping back when you're talking to someone, there's a recognition that I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. You know, I'm sorry that happened to you. That was a problem when that happened to you. All of those recognitions that, you know, what the other person is saying is valid and the recognition that I misjudged, I'm sorry. That's kind of that reconciliation that needs to take place when a difficult conversation comes up, when something arises as a leader. If a leader can't admit when there is something that has gone awry or something has gone in the wrong direction, then you can't make progress. Um, we're not perfect as human beings. You know, we make errors. Um, we have to be able to, the strength of us is also admitting when we misjudged and put ourselves back mm. on course with individuals because there's such a level of respect that is gained from the other person when they hear that, oh, wow, there's an admission here. This person is not infallible. This person has, you know, some errors that they need to work on. This person is not perfect. There is a respect behind that, that when you allow yourself to be human and to admit mistakes, learn from mistakes, talk about them, and move forward from them. I think I think vulnerability's counterpoint to me in mm. this is forgiveness. Yes. Yes. Forgiveness of the other person, but also the forgiveness of self. And oftentimes we that's 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 in in leadership that's a very hard thing because you know we're we're meant to be uh, the one who is is infallible, the one that can do it, and and when we go. Uh, you know, we do something that uh, was an error, that wasn't quite the right path. To admit that, to forgive yourself for that, is very hard to do, um, because mm. to make to make a quote mistake, mistake is not a negative word. Mistake is a word that uh, should invoke learning, should invoke uh, reflection, self reflection should invoke how to take a different path. 
um, mistake or error is not a negative. It's the process. It's the new process of beginning to learn another way. Um, and I think we have to learn those types of principles that to err brings about new change and new opportunity. So, and yeah. I think that's interesting you mentioned that because in research, the whole principle of research and investigation is that you will fail first before you succeed. Correct. So the more often you fail, the faster you get to a point where you can succeed. But as humans, we tend to hold leaders to almost an infallible mm. standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think if, if I look at, if I look at the, I'm going to use, you say American presidents over the last 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years, I think the ones that I admire the most are the ones that could acknowledge mistakes, mm-hmm. but also bring that compassion that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And they did not persist in a course of action once they discovered that course of action was not beneficial anymore. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't self-serving only. Mm-hmm. When I was reading, um, when I was studying to meet with uh, President Carter, I was reading his books. And at one point within his presidency, um, he sat down because it wasn't going as he had initially thought. And he brought people in to talk about and to truly hear what their opinions were to to set to plot a new course to to change a route but it takes it really takes a leader being able to say i need to do a self-assessment um i need to reevaluate where i am and what i'm doing um I need to understand that something isn't right. I know it in my gut, but now I need to admit it and bring it out into the forefront and talk to others about it. The best, the, the, I think one of the things that I would add in my admiring of this, of Jimmy Carter, was that he brought in others to talk candidly to him. And in that, you establish that next growth that can you know, emerge out of that. Um, not to internalize it because then you get trapped in it, right? I mean, you get trapped in your mm. own mind, in your own process. But in that admission to reach outward to others, because if you're feeling it, it's probably being seen other places as well. But you have to be able to reach outward as well. I was thinking, if you if you think about this compassion, connection, um and reaching out to others. Mm-hmm. And we think about an online world. We've become so much more online in the last year or two. Do you think, what do you think could be the role for blind people specifically in online mediation or mediation where sight is not the primary source of information anymore. What I think would be interesting is, um, and I don't know that this is just in terms of blindness, but it does invite us to begin to listen, uh, to bring about that other 
sense that we have, our hearing, um, to begin to tap into what you were saying when you were sitting and observing people and, and trying to get into that gray space, uh, you have to begin to listen to the words that are not said. You've got to begin to listen to tone, to hesitation in voice, to uh, a voice rapidly speeding up, you know, saying maybe illustrating nervousness. You've got to be able to listen. Um, mm. And there are so many cues uh, that you know, we can tap into in that process. When we're face-to-face, um, I guess, you know, m- myself as a mediator, I, I even face-to-face, you know, I, I, I don't nec- can't necessarily see them. Although I must say that in my upbringing, people have always said that I have an intuitive nature. So even when I could see, I could still read people. But all of that said, um, it's just going to bring us into a new age of moving away from our eyes as a primary source and moving into our other senses. Not just blindness, it's everybody. Everyone's going to have to listen um, more readily. I don't know. I was wondering if you... um just one last question. If you, if we think of this world which is, which is now gone online, I mean, you're sitting in the U.S. and I'm sitting in Amsterdam <laughs> and we're having this conversation, right. you know, it's, um, and it's, uh, looking at somebody's face in a very small screen and, or, and trying to figure out what they're thinking, what they're feeling. In this online world, if you, from a blind perspective, I think you, you just mentioned some of the stuff that you think, um, that we need to pay attention to. But if, if you were to give sighted people or people in general a tip or two, just to say, next time in a conversation, as a mediator, you know, I mean, you hear stuff. I, I, I know you said that. I know yeah. that you pick up between the lines that a lot of people, other people don't, you know. Yeah. And if you could, if you could give people that are listening just one or two tips on what they can do to make that being in the moment mm-hmm. more effective and, 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 and connected and, and, and maybe hear what's between the lines. Do you have a tip or two for people? In the virtual world, what I have, I can say that um, what I have found very interesting uh, is that we are locked now into wanting to see that person that square image on the screen um, and all is well. And I think, gosh, one time we could, we could uh, teleconference and, and we could still get the job done. But Zoom has, has really continued to kind of perpetuate the visual need to engage with each other. Um, and, um, you know, people, the, the etiquette of having your screen on so you can see the person, even if it's this tiny speck. Um, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, we've moved away from the whole idea of calling and teleconferencing where you didn't see the individual and you still engaged. 
you still had a very productive uh, conversation with a group of people over the telephone line. Um, so as we move into this virtual age and we still hang on to the need to see each other, even if it's a little square image, um, I would probably ask people to, you know, disengage from what you're seeing and again, tap into what you can hear. The whole concept of, of, of virtual reality, um, I think we have to be careful with that. Um, I think it can create another uh, um, world of vision rather than tapping into our other senses. And um, I would encourage people to, oh, uh, disengage from the camera and listen. Do things that can help you listen. But, but let me put it this way. If you, it sounds like you're saying, close your eyes for a minute mm -hmm. and listen. And if, if we were to do that, if I were to close my eyes and, and just listen to a person in a conversation or a person, in essence, where I'm sitting in, in mm -hmm. a meeting and, and it's almost like eavesdropping, mm -hmm. you know, in a way, what, what kind of things, or maybe there's one thing you would say, is it that we should listen for? Something that can help us connect, something that help us be in the moment and feel what the other person is feeling. I guess I would fall back on, on the mediation techniques. And I would say, if I'm telling you a story, if I am talking about work, relationships, whatever it may be, I would say to listen for what is not being said. Um, the tone of voice, the story, um, where is it leading the individual? What, what are they trying to say to you? Um, so oftentimes, uh, you know, a voice that's happy, you can obviously say, oh, you know, you're feeling very good about what's going on around you. A voice that's sad may may not, or a voice that's slow and low, may speak to you. So someone may speak to you, but hidden behind that, you understand why the voice is, is, is low. Um, I, would, I would encourage people to think of why the voice is happy, why the voice is low, why the voice is a certain way. Engage from that point of view. That's kind of getting into the gray space. And from there, I mm -hmm. think that you can engage more closely with the individual. We don't, want, we don't often say what we want to say. We go around about mm -hmm. and we're indirect in our conversations. Sometimes we're right on point. And sometimes, you know, someone will be able to say, oh, I hear what you're saying. But even in that even in some of those direct statements, stop for a moment and say to yourself, why is that being said like that? What is that person saying there? 
Those are the types of questions that we need to ask to fully engage with each other, especially in difficult mm-hmm. conversations, especially when we're dealing around disability, uh, race, society, cultural, gender. No one, you know, we're working on how to communicate with each other. We're working on that. So we go roundabout when we talk about what we want to, you know, the, the point we're making. So I would encourage people to listen for the what, the why behind the words that are being said and engage from there. Mm. I think that's quite powerful. It's also something that Chris Voss talks about um, when you recognize what somebody's saying. He talks about paraphrasing and summary and all the stuff that we normally have in active mm-hmm. listening. But one of the things that he mentions as well, and that is label the mm. emotion. But it also means to be able to label the emotion, you must be able mm-hmm. to hear it. And it sounds to me like you're saying, listen with compassion mm-hmm. and listen for the emotion, listen for the feeling, listen for said, what is not being said, mm-hmm. the, the underlying power of who we are in relationships and connection instead of just the words. And that, Eckstein, is the bridge. I, I have to agree it, 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 that that connection is something that makes it more than just people being in the room together. Mm-hmm. Even <laughs> well, Cynthia, I would like to thank you for coming to, for for having this conversation with me today. It's it's always lovely to talk to you, and and today has been no well, exception. Thank you. I've enjoyed myself. You're always a pleasure, and I hope you survive. <laughs> I will. Thank you. So I wish you a lovely day and um, and a wonderful week. You too as well. And, And I hope to speak to you again soon. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was Cynthia Bryant. You know, what I find fascinating is the way her mother deliberately exposed her to a wide range of cultures was growing up. It's caused her to see empathy as an essential quality in a leader, especially as she's talked about the difficulties of segregation. I know I've cast my net quite wide over my lifetime, but don't we all sometimes miss something? Shouldn't we cast it just that little bit wider? Now go out there, be exponential, and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.